Greetings, everybody. This is another terrific episode of Hear Her Sports for these coronavirus times. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. My guest today is physical therapist, coach, strength trainer, Tracy Fober, who will be talking about body weight training and movement-based fitness. This is with shelter in place in mind, of course, but let me emphasize that training at home does not have to mean limiting athletic development. Tracy's methods and what she teaches her clients is no sacrifice and can be used to great effect even once we all can train wherever we want again. Tracy has a range of clients from young, old, those rehabbing after injury, and professional athletes. If you find this conversation useful, share it with friends who are working out at home and are interested in learning more about what's available. Let's get to it. Today, I'm speaking to coach and physical therapist, Tracy Fober. She works out of her private practice, Iron Maven Performance Health in Park City, Utah. For four years leading into the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea, Tracy worked with US Ski and Snowboard. Tracy is dedicated to teaching people how to move for performance and health. She promotes the concept of physical health for life and sport, integrating knowledge and practical experience from the fields of exercise science, rehabilitation, and the sport of weightlifting. You can follow Tracy and her work on Instagram, Twitter, her blog, and a new podcast, Physio and the Art of Human Performance. All those links will be in her show notes at hearhersports.com. I've been drawn to Tracy's methods and philosophies for a while, so it is really exciting she's here today. I've invited Tracy to talk about working out at home during coronavirus shelter in place. I'm interested to hear how you interpret that. So welcome, Tracy. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I am happy to be here and happy to chat with you. Great. Well, let's start with basics. Can you give us a quick overview of your practice? And I suppose we should say your practice pre-COVID-19, just to give us some perspective. I have a 1,700 square foot facility where I see self-pay physical therapy patients, mostly non-surgical overuse type injuries of endurance athletes or ski-related issues. I also see people who just want to work on their physical health. So some may call it personal training. I call it physical health coaching. And typically these people are individuals who have some significant orthopedic history. And so they need someone with a little bit more of a background in rehabilitation to help them safely get to the place where they want to get to. We have a lot of very high high-level recreational athletes in Park City, so they want to move pretty intensely, so I help with that. And then I also do physical preparation, which some would call athletic development or strength conditioning for athletes ranging from high school age skiers up through, I have professional triathlete, a woman who is aspiring to be a high-level coastal rower, so I help prepare people for their sports and do the, the basic strength and conditioning elements in addition to their regular sport preparation. Are you working with people long-term? I mean, I assume that the triathlete, for example, and the rower, that's a long-term commitment on both your yes. parts. Yes, that's the goal. And those are the cases that are really, really fun to do because you get to establish a relationship and really work on the process and teach the process of developing infrastructure for sport and for competition. So now let's move on to post-shelter-in-place. What are you doing right now? And I learned in your recent episode of your podcast that you're working with athletes outside. Yeah, so I am at home with my husband most of the time doing some bodyweight work at home, and then we go outside when we can. And then I go to my facility. I'm, I guess I'm lucky in that way that I still go to my own facility for my own physical health work. I'm not seeing anyone in my facility per our county directive and state directive. And then I have seen a few people outside at the high school track keeping good physical distance measures and, and those things in mind. So it just depends. It's still pretty much winter here. There's a lot of snow on the ground. Mm. It's still pretty cold. So that has been relatively rare. I've been doing some FaceTime and Zoom consultations uh, with some of my patients who are, who are at home. And I'm lucky that I have a couple of people who have their own home gyms. So that makes it a little bit easier. Well, let's talk about transitioning 
from gym workouts to home workouts. I mean, that's the, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today is just mm -hmm. sort of like, how can listeners make that transition smoothly and I don't know, not get themselves into trouble, I guess. Well, I think it all starts where if your whole approach to exercise or being fit, being healthy is movement based, then you're going to have a much easier time transitioning. Many people have kind of an equipment centric view of fitness. And so they're reliant on facilities and different implements to get things done. At the very worst, they're used to sitting on machines and doing a lot of machine-based activities. So I have a movement-based kind of system that I work in. And even when we're in my facility, a lot of what we do is body weight driven and we use what I like to call vitamin G, which is gravity. And we teach people to move and teach people to manage their own body weight in space. And then you kind of build from there and you build a movement vocabulary. And that way you're starting to master your own body weight. And then that translates to anywhere. So I really started to appreciate and value a true movement-centric kind of mindset when I was working with U.S. Ski and Snowboard and my athletes were traveling internationally and it was never certain that they would have anything but a hotel room or a ski lodge to do warm-ups, to do cool-downs, to do their training. So really had to equip them with the tools that they could use to keep themselves prepared and healthy, yet they had basically what they could carry with them in their luggage. Mm -hmm. So that was um, a real learning experience for me and, and very good for me to have. Can you describe that? You called it movement-based system. Can you describe that more? So it comes from a lot of work from a, a gentleman named Kelvin Giles and the whole idea of physical literacy. So like we have reading literacy or math literacy, in physical education, in physical development, we want to teach people how to move and that they have a command of their body. So locomotor movement, so gait related movement, throwing mechanics, catching mechanics, running mechanics. How do you manage your body weight on a day to day basis? And those things that you would typically hopefully learn in your physical education and gym classes throughout your elementary and secondary education experience. You're very optimistic about gym class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I am optimistic about it because I have colleagues through the GAIN network who are fantastic physical educators, and I've had the great privilege to be now for the last maybe 15 years exposed to people who are passionate about teaching young people and really physically educating people on how to care for themselves versus just play games. Right. There's a there's a big difference between that and and you know many people have a poor experience within physical education as youngsters and now in my current situation I end up having to try and remediate a lot of that with adults I bet. and help them find the joy in moving their body and to kind of get over some of those negative experiences or negative stereotypes they might have about certain types of exercise, particularly uh, certain types of weight training. They might be very intimidated by that or put off by that because they were, you know, they just had a, a negative experience with that typically in high school. Right. right. Well, so one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because I was concerned that a lot of people transitioning from sort of what they were doing before coronavirus, you know, at the gym, would think that they were compromising. So let's say you have somebody who's been working out at the gym, either with, you know, a gigantic squat rack or using the machines that we typically find in gyms. How do you suggest making that transition in a way so that they don't feel like they're compromising and they're, you know, sacrificing themselves? Well, you just have to be creative and you have to hopefully have had in place a basic understanding or literacy of body weight movements that have been worked on in addition to 
whether it's squats with weight or lunges with weight or whatever, like, okay, so we're going to do some step ups because we have a step at home. We're going to do some body weight squats. We're going to do some multi-directional lunges. We're going to do some rear foot elevated single leg squats with your back leg up on the couch. And there's all kinds of things you can do. And if you do things like manipulate the rest interval and you change the intensity by changing the amplitude of the movement or the speed of the movement versus just external loading. You use those variables to create elements of intensity where you need them, but you also start to gain an appreciation of just the power of consistency versus the intensity of any single workout. It's the consistency over time that's going to get you where you want to go. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. You mentioned the basic elements of rest, interval, weight, repetition. Can you talk about those things and how to sort of create a set? Well, so one of my mentors, Vern Gambetta, and then also Kelvin Giles, those guys, we talk about simplicity leading into complexity. So you start simple. And then once you've mastered the simple movement, so say you just start with a body weight squat, or you start even more simply with a sit to stand. So standing up and sitting down to a chair or a couch. And then you add complexity. Now you can certainly add complexity by adding an external load. So you could hold your cat or you could hold, you know, a water-filled milk jug or whatever. (laughs) You could do that. But you could also change the seat height. You can change the tempo at which you're moving. You could vary the, like I said, vary the rest interval. So a common interval workout might be a Tabata interval where you go for 20 seconds of work and 10 seconds of rest. And you do that for a number of sets, maybe four or eight. So you've got a work to rest ratio of two to one, or you start to play with one to one or one to two. So all of those concepts are ways of changing the intensity, dialing it up or dialing it back, whichever you need to do. And that doesn't require any external load. It just requires manipulating things like amplitude, tempo, rest. And so I try to equip all of the people I work with, whether they're 18 or 68, I educate them on on those ideas and those elements and the power of those elements to really give them variety in whatever movement they're doing. So if it's a body weight squat or it's a dumbbell swing, they have those tools in their toolbox. I try to give people independence and help them create their own toolbox and appreciation of different types of movement. Do you think that there are going to be things that athletes are surprised by or should watch out for when they make the transition to working out at home? Hopefully they'll be pleasantly surprised at how enjoyable and engaging simplicity can be. And that means we have to give people more resources. So they have to really expand their toolbox because a lot of strength conditioning coaches or personal trainers, their movement library is somewhat limited and traditional. So hopefully people will start to see what is available out there for public consumption. I have a lot of colleagues who have started to do that, particularly some of the PE teachers, they've been doing that. And I hope people during this time would be able to find some of those resources and then explore a lot of the movements. Like three of my colleagues who are, two are physical educators. One is, um, he would be kind of I guess, considered uh, an adjunct physical educator. He works in a, in a gymnastics club in England, James Marshall, and then a guy named Andy Stone, who's in Virginia, and then a guy named Greg Thompson in Michigan. And they've all been putting out body weight movement resources for people. And, and these are designed for kids age 6 to 14. And these are things that are totally appropriate for everybody age 20 to 70. Assuming you're, you know, basically healthy, but the idea that you can use these very simple movements to create health and to create fitness 
that's what I hope people will start to see. And you don't need to have a Peloton. You don't need to have, you know, a squat rack. And you can have some very, very basic things in your home. And sometimes it's just a floor and your own body weight and a mat maybe. But that'll do. Yeah, let's talk about setting up your home. I don't want to give the impression that listeners need to run out and buy a bunch of stuff. And I don't think that's your way anyway. But what would you suggest as how to set up a good spot to work out? Well, I just have like a little maybe eight by eight little little space in my kitchen. And basically, I have a wooden floor. And so I do upper extremity arm movements. I do some calf raises. I do some body weight squats. I do some multi-directional lunges. I have a perform better mat that sometimes I do some supine and prone mobility work. So I have a foam roller, a mat, and a four and a half foot PVC pipe stick. And that's basically what I have at home. Oh, and I have a step, I guess. I have a couple of stairs that I can use (laughs) for step ups. I have a couch that I can use. And that's, that's good enough for me. I'm in a little bit different situation than some people because I can do relatively simple things at home and I still have access to my facility. So that said, my clients that I've been working with, if you can get three dumbbells of different sizes, so maybe five, 10 and 15, or maybe a 10, 15 and 20, if you have just one of each of those, you can get a tremendous amount of work done. And that would be about it because most people have some furniture maybe most people have a step or two but just an open floor space space is one of the key elements to have and if you have a little bit of space if you have a nice hallway like I don't even have a nice hallway because we kind of live in a, a vertical house if you have a nice hallway where you can do some walking and gate related things that's a great asset I want to go back to resources and where people can go to find out some of this stuff, because I think a lot of this stuff that you're talking about is new to some people. So I'd like to know where they can go and look at videos and whatnot. So Greg Thompson, I think he just made a new YouTube channel. So if you look up Greg Thompson, Michigan, Longacre Elementary School, you'll find his YouTube channel. He has an early morning little movement class for his grade schoolers. So there's good stuff there. Andy Stone has a YouTube channel that is physical education, but it also has wrestling workouts. So if you do have a nice carpeted surface or floor at home or good mat, there's some great sort of mat-based movements and stuff you can do. James Marshall is in England and he does a lot of not, it's not competitive gymnastics. It is just basic gymnastics skills. Like hopefully you and I learned when we were young, right? Do you remember taking gym class and forward rolls, backward rolls? I was so bad at backward rolls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Those basic skills and progressions to learn those skills and, and progressions for big people who haven't done any of those skills in a long time and have lost a lot of flexibility. Another person I really like is a guy named Chip Conrad, and he has a YouTube channel and he has a facility in Sacramento, California, Body Tribe. And he does a tremendous job of combining sort of the strength sport elements, you know, stone lifting and log carries and deadlifting and powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman sport, but with the appreciation of bodyweight movement and bodyweight mobility training. And he has a very mindful approach to movement versus the kind of beat yourself down, maybe for lack of a better term, CrossFit-ish type work where the idea is to it's almost like a punishment or like a contest, you know, between you and other people. His mindset, and and this is one uh, that I really appreciate is, this is all about you and self-improvement. 
and learning to appreciate your body and what it's capable of and learning to be in your environment and exist in your environment and to really take care of yourself. This is, this is about taking care of your physical health. Like you take care of your dental health or your mental health. You want to learn how to use movement to make sure that you're able to engage in the world and operate in the world in the way that you want to do so. That's a really terrific list. I can't help having noticed that that was a, a list of men. Is this a yes. male-dominated industry that you're in? Yes. I would just say, yes, it is. And I think men, and this is my own opinion, I don't have any research to back this up, men are probably more likely to put themselves out there and do their thing. And so, yeah, I have been surrounded by and supported by many very wonderful men, male coaches, male rehab professionals. And at this point in my life, my goal is to help get more women up and out there and, and doing things and putting themselves out there. It's even sometimes a challenge for me to put myself out there. I need to be more confident in what I'm doing and confident about the quality of work that I have to share. And so you're right. There are a lot of dudes. There are <laughs> women out there who are doing good stuff, but we just need to like share more of that. And, and you're doing an excellent job of getting more women's voices out there and letting it be known that there are super talented women who have so much great work to share. But unfortunately, those things just aren't known for whatever reason. And there are a number of reasons. Well, thank you so much. And I also really appreciate that you talk about that because I've definitely noticed that doing the podcast that it's hard for women to speak up for yes. a lot of reasons. Yeah. Yes. It's been, I think, a challenge. And for me, it was, it was part of the reason that I chose to go back into private practice. Sometimes I get a little sassy. And so... <laughs> I I wanted to kind of speak my mind and advocate publicly for women in sport and women working in sport because it was just blatantly clear to me that there were some major challenges and issues that women faced and these things weren't going to change until the people who are in positions of power who are primarily men, but sometimes women noticed these challenges or they noticed the inequity or they noticed the unconscious bias or conscious bias as to what's going on. And so in order to be able to speak freely, I felt I had to be an independent coach so that I wouldn't, you know, be sort of, you know, handcuffed by, you know, I didn't want to represent an organization right, and certainly right. speak out of turn. So right. what challenges have you faced? What challenges have I faced? So, you know, one of the main challenges, women as strength and conditioning coaches. And when I was at Yoski and Snowboard, I was hired as a strength and conditioning coach. You know, basically, we're rarely given the opportunity to coach men. So I was initially hired for a women's team. And I fully believe I wouldn't have been hired if the position would have been for a men's team. And then later on in my career, when there was a potential position, a higher level position open, and it included supervision of the highest level men, a men's team, it was pretty much made clear that no women would be considered for that. Wow. And that was stated? No, it wasn't stated, but it was just because of the culture and the history, like, you know, there were only three female coaches at the national team level of any kind, either sport or physical preparation in a staff of over 70, between 70 and 80 coaches total. So just the overarching sort of I guess, for lack of a better word, culture and sort of the way things were. It was interesting for me to see, like, women were acceptable in human resources. Women were acceptable in rehabilitation. 
women were acceptable in, in nutrition and dietetics. But when it came to the actual sport coaching or supporting athletes in strength conditioning, those areas of performance, very few women. And the whole idea of including women in those areas, that was hard for many people to accept. You know, there were barriers like, well, we have to pay for you a separate room when we travel and, oh, you know, and all oh my, you know, think, no, and it, I'm serious. I know it's so real, but it just, it, you know, oh my God. it's so real, but, and, and it's just an, it's a, an interesting thing that frankly, a lot of the men who are nice men and who are caring and who had families of their own, they just had never stopped to reflect right on how things could be different, maybe why they might need to be different, why there might be value in having a more diverse performance team, how the environment might be a little sort of, I don't want to use the term hostile, but not conducive to including women. If there's explicit music being played all the time, or there's a lot of for lack of a better term, bantering, you know, there's off-color jokes or there's misogynistic, you know, language use. Like, they always fall back, well, that's just locker room talk and that's how we've always done it. You're like, yeah, but you're not acting as a professional. <laughs> can we be professional here? And can we raise the bar? And can you stop and see how your behavior is not welcoming to everyone who has potential to contribute to the organization. And as you know, like a lot of times the women in the situation will be like, Hey, peace out. I'm out of here because I'm tired of fighting this battle on a day to day basis and nobody paying attention to what's, mm -hmm. what's going on. Yep. What do you think women do contribute to the programs? <laughs> I think they elevate the level of professionalism. They give a sense of caring. And you can demand and you can command respect from a team, from a room of athletes without being, um, you know, quote, mentally tough. You can command all of that and still be a nice person. I think women in general, they'll be more inclusive, like, Let's look at the developing athletes. We're not just going to pay attention to the superstars. We're going to look at the developing athletes. We're going to care about them. We're going to notice what they need. Just like reading social cues and noticing our athletes struggling from a mental and emotional health perspective. Are we providing the right teaching progressions? You know, are we really helping people develop versus just, you know, managing the super talented people. Right. Sometimes I think that particularly at the elite level, the focus is on hurting and managing the talented people versus the really hard stuff, which is developing and bringing up the younger people and giving them the support and the environment that they need to grow and develop and really appreciating that and looking at potential versus looking at just what currently is and sort of like milking that for all that it is. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, everybody develops at a different rate. Right, right. And so the idea that you can sort of see that potential and you have the patience to really work with that. And then also like appreciating character. You know, there are all these sayings like, you know, character eats talent for breakfast or, you know, whatever, <laughs> those kinds of things and understanding the true value of that. And that's not a gender specific thing. There are plenty of male coaches out there who appreciate the role of character and like the role that being a good teammate and a good citizen plays in the development of excellence within an organization and within a team. And and one of the teams that really has done a fantastic job of this is the U.S. cross-country ski team. And those guys, and, and they're all at the highest level, men coaching. They have used a female sports psychologist a lot and um, female dietitians. And their strength coach is a female, Tashana Schiller. But they have created a culture and a dynamic 
that has taken over 10 years to do, but they have created from the youth up through the senior national level, a real system of valuing athletes, valuing the staff, and really asking people to be accountable for their behavior and asking them to be appreciative of the process and understand the process. And, you know, we had our first gold medal ever in cross-country skiing in 2018. Oh, my God, that was the best. Yeah, it was just (laughs) such a a beautiful thing to see. But if you you ever had the opportunity to talk to the athletes and the staff, they have worked so hard to – to really build a complete culture. And that comes from the top down and coach Chris Grover and his staff, Matt Whitcomb and Jason Cork and Brian Fish and Tashana Schiller. They have worked for 10 years now to bring a system of organization and a real high level of care and concern for the, the whole athlete and for their staff to cultivate excellence, you know, and that excellence from the ground up, then turns into performance excellence when you get it all right. Right. I love hearing that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We sort of got sidetracked. I want to actually go back to some of this earlier stuff that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. In particular, again, thinking about not feeling like you're compromising when you're working out at home. I know you feel strongly about it's not necessary to lift heavy weights. Can you talk a little bit about that? So... It is not necessary to lift heavy weights. Lifting heavy weights is a higher level skill. It demands time, good body awareness, good preparation. Moving your body weight through a big range of motion and doing it with good speed and tempo and doing it with a little bit of intensity, that can bring about some pretty significant adaptations and some good mobility. And I would encourage people to think about strength not as something that's just displayed by lifting external objects and something that is measured by the girth of a limb or the amount of actual muscle you have, but it's about how well you manage yourself and how much strength you can use through a range of motion versus how much weight you can lift while you're laying down on a bench that you might only be moving the bar 18 inches. (laughs) And um, so I, I guess it's just like if you are given the opportunity and so many people are not given the opportunity to go through a couple of weeks of body weight only work and to see the power of body weight work when it's done, you know, consistently three days a week and it's done with high quality and it's done with a purposeful variety so that all of the movements are supportive of some common goals and some common ideas of physical literacy, that those things, when they're put together, are more than the sum of their parts, and they they create what I'd like to call a robustness or an infrastructure versus just, you know, like muscle. So helping people understand the difference between hypertrophy in a muscle and then robustness and resilience of the whole system. You know, it's kind of like thinking about more superficial stuff versus thinking about the substance, the musculoskeletal health, the nervous system coordination aspects, the suppleness or the gracefulness of your movement versus simply moving an object that might be a little bit heavy. I mean, it's interesting, the human psychology, how sometimes challenging it is to appreciate internal strength and infrastructure versus the external display of physicality. We have very specific ideas about what strength is in our culture, and hopefully we can change some of that in this time where we're forced to not have all the facilities and implements available for a typical strength training. Maybe we can reflect a little bit more on what that means. And I'm sorry, like, 
I, I'm reticent to like talk about specific exercises, you know, specific, like you need to do, you know, five sets of 20 push ups, and you need to do all this. I'm pretty reticent to do that, because I don't like to give out workouts just to anybody, right? Not for a proprietary reason or anything like that. But I just don't like the idea of giving people things that they may not be prepared for. So we're talking a little bit more philosophically versus specifics. But if you are able to see the variety of movement you can do and the amplitude it can be and the different tempos you can use, then you can create a great deal of strength. Now, it may not, it doesn't make you like lift twice your body weight, but you may be able to endure things that you weren't able to endure before and your your overall capacity to deal with day-to-day things is improved. When you're talking, and I think about body weight, you know, it's great for when you're aging. Now that I'm aging, I think a lot differently about, I don't know, strength training. Yes. I think all of us do that. I turned 51 in January. And you do think differently about things. And you think more about strength as it applies to just being able to function every day. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Just being able to function every day. And you but function well, you know, I mean, I think athletes oh, want to function well. Absolutely. At, at a high level, like you want to go ride your bike, you want to run, you want to swim. I have people out here who want to skin up mountains and ski down the back country and they want to go heli skiing and they're going to do a 30 kilometer cross country ski and then they've got a 100 mile bike ride planned <laughs> and then they're going to go a yurt trek through the dolomites and then <laughs> amazing people who do amazing things and they want to be able to do them without joint pain without limitation they want tools to recover from their day-to-day efforts so that they're rested and they're recharged and they're ready to go. And maybe that's another thing is like, how do you function on a daily basis? And we tend to value like, oh, got to like feel the burn and be super sore. And the next day you can't move. And obviously what you did was beneficial. Well, if you can't even train the next day, then you're kind of losing out. It's not like as I told one of my young 18-year-old ski athletes yesterday, it's not how hard any one individual workout is. It is the quality and the consistency of those sessions over the next six months that's going to prepare you to try to make the national team right? and to ski at your best. It's not how hard this one day is. You, you got to really try to let go of that and this idea that if you're not completely exhausted at the end of your session, that we haven't done something beneficial. And that takes, oftentimes it takes a significant injury and the process of returning from that injury to help pound that into some of these thick skulls. (laughs) (laughs) And particularly in young people who have been invincible, but as you get older, you're kind of forced to appreciate that a little bit more because you just cannot go as hard because you will be broken for like a week straight. And, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And, and that's no fun, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good segue to another topic. Let's talk about rest. You know, it's so important and often overlooked and I'm wondering what's going to happen to all these people who are used to, you know, being at the job all day and suddenly they're just have a ton of time or are at home and really can work out every day, all day. Right. Right. I just talked to a friend of mine who's a dietitian. Um, She works at the Lake Placid Olympic Training Center, and she was talking about helping athletes manage the COVID-15, which is evidently like the freshman 15, I I guess now. I just heard about that, yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so how do you, you have to basically, you have to form new habits, right? If you're cooped up at home all day, you have to form new habits of movement, you know, so maybe a 45 minute walk is something that's going to be really beneficial for you. And you have to maybe form new habits of grocery shopping. Maybe you have to learn to cook. (laughs) 
and you have to make better, higher quality choices if you're not expending the number of calories that you used to expend. So here's an opportunity, right? Here's an opportunity to really maybe develop some new tastes, appreciation for different foods, appreciation for actually preparing food, and the simplicity of like getting out and doing a walk or doing some like interval efforts, interval accelerations from one street light to the next or one stop sign to the next, (laughs) really sort of like getting creative and thinking outside of the weight room or, you know, outside of your gym and really creating new habits. That's kind of the key, but seeing it as an opportunity versus a disadvantage. And I think the athletes who have traveled internationally really have an advantage here because they are used to being in situations. They don't have all of the luxuries that sometimes we have here in the United States. And we're so fortunate, particularly the athletes that are at large division one universities where they're fed constantly and they have these elaborate facilities and they have tutors and they have all of these things helping them to manage their daily activities (laughs) and support their physical development and their intellectual development and their emotional development. And now they're at home and they have to fix their own food. They have to interpret the workouts their coaches are sending them online. They have to manage their daily schedule. They don't have a structured class schedule anymore. They don't have a structured practice schedule. So they're having to be totally independent and manage their time and That is a challenge, but that is a great opportunity to mature and develop some good habits that will serve you for your whole life. Right. I I think you sort of answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just in case. I mean, what are your thoughts about this current situation of coronavirus? Like, how are you doing? How are your athletes doing? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? I don't know. Take it anywhere you want. I am hopefully optimistic that... This time in our life will help us remember the gratitude for simple things, for connecting with people, for the value of relationships, for what we have. I mean, so much of our material daily activities has been taken away from us as athletes and coaches and rehab professionals. So we are having to make do with communicating through video discussions and and we're having to do with less so we're hopefully we will find a mindset that really appreciates that less can be more less can be valuable and we can exist and do really good work with very very simple tools and we don't have to have all of the fancy facilities and when we do go back to the fancy facilities we might even kind of rearrange them and simplify them because we know that we maybe don't need all the shiny objects or we won't be as compelled to just use them to use them because we know we can achieve very good levels of fitness and healthy infrastructure with many more simple things. And we will value more the interaction among teammates, the interaction between coaches and athletes or from rehab professionals and athletes will value more that interaction and that connection versus just the transaction of here, I'm going to give you this workout and you're going to do it. (laughs) Um, Because a lot of what happens in coaching and in rehab is it tends to be very transactional when we're forced to go to the bare bones. Maybe this will help us see the things that are transformational and value those things that are transformational. And, and I don't mean that in a superficial way. I, I really firmly believe that relationships and helping people grow up is what we're here for and what we should be doing. And we can achieve that while we physically prepare for sport. And we can achieve that as we come back from an injury. My husband is a high school teacher, so he is trying to teach his AP U.S. history and government classes online. And so we're both 
really navigating this very interesting situation. We're dealing with parents and and students and people who are having to, like I said, learn new habits and trying to create structure where there was only external structure of the school day. They have to create their own school structure at home now. And my athletes have to create their own structure with maybe limited guidance. And I hope that this is an opportunity, but like everybody, I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, how long is this going to last? And can my business, can I overcome this? Can I keep going? I'm worried about some of the winter sport athletes, you know, they should be starting their off season training now, but all their facilities are closed. And if we do have a full competition schedule next winter, are they going to be prepared? And when they are allowed to train again, our coach is going to be pressured just to squish right, the right. same volume of training in my summer athletes. I worry about them because I know they're like, you know, I, I can't make any money. I prepared all winter. I was ready to do this. And emotionally, how are they, you know, going to deal with this? So there are certainly a lot of questions. And I guess we as a world and a society are going to find out <laughs> how resilient we are mm-hmm. at coming back from just a really bizarre and challenging time. And I look at it, I think, you know what, we're so lucky because like, we're not being bombed, right? Our homes aren't being destroyed, you know, but like the fabric of our society and our collective social connectivity has been really challenged. And so it'll be interesting to see, I guess. Yeah. It feels so complex to me. Every time I think of one thing, then I start thinking about the other. And you brought up a lot of them, but the economics and the mental and the physical. And if I were watching it from afar, it would be very fascinating. Right. <laughs> like, like, oh, the math and the science lessons and the, and the epidemiology lessons and the statistics lessons. Mm-hmm. Holy cow, look at the graphs. Like, that's an exponential <laughs> curve right there. But that's real data, and those are real deaths. Right. When you stop and think about that, that really gives you pause, and you're like, oh, gosh, and I'm worried about somebody not getting a workout in. Oh, right. You know? <laughs> There's a little perspective there. Yeah. yeah. Well, as I suspected, we had a ton to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that you want to add? I thank you for your efforts in promoting the voices of women, women who have so much to contribute to sport and to the development of athletes and leading organizations, leading individuals. That's really cool to hear. And I'm trying myself to do some of those things and to contribute to that and kind of push and prod a few of my younger female colleagues into putting themselves out there more and to taking on the role of being a good role model and an example for younger women. Because as we all know, if you don't see it, it's probably harder to think about actually being it. Absolutely. So I appreciate your efforts to really be a high quality voice for women and give women a voice in sport because just the fact that we're not given much voice in sport, it's getting better. But as we can see, even the women's national team soccer, (laughs) that was pretty interesting to see some of the language used in the legal documents. And there are still lots of big and small obstacles to overcome. And we only do that through conversation and through really competent, smart people being given a voice. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do with my podcast coming up. The current podcasts have just been me and and Donnie sort of talking about some things, but to give some more women a voice so that men and women out there hear that there are these people with these great ideas and great leadership qualities that are capable of contributing to organizations and two whole professions. And so we just need to give them a chance so that they can be seen and we need to advocate for them and sponsor them. There's some really interesting articles in Harvard Business Review about mentoring and then sponsorship and really like 
pushing for people to have opportunities because a lot of times we don't get opportunities unless you have somebody in a position of power specifically open a door for you. Yeah. Rooting for you. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you just, you just got to have it. And part of the process is people like you and me trying to like, we're little rooters. And then if we can, we open a door for other people and give them opportunities. So getting a little long-winded, that's what I wanted to, I guess, kind of finish on. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate you taking the time to talk. It's great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Find more about Tracy Fober and links to the video she mentioned and much more in the show notes at hearhersports.com. Join us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hear Her Sports. It always makes my day to hear from listeners, so send an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com or leave a message at 725-BE-BADASS, 725-222-3277. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Wishing you all great health and mental fortitude. Till next time, bye-bye. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.